You are listening to the Commerce Insights with Woman podcast, where inspiring industry experts share their experiences and insights with us. So welcome to another episode of Commerce Insights podcast by Woolman. Today with me, I have a special guest from Ireland, e-commerce consultant Vinny O'Brien. Vinny, welcome to Commerce Insights podcast. How are you today? Good, thanks, Mika. I appreciate you guys having me along. Uh, I'm doing good. Ireland is experiencing a mini heat wave right now. Serbian is in good form. I'm wearing shorts, which you can't see, but I just want to put it out there. Uh, so I think when I'm in, good, in shorts, I'm in a good mood. So all is good with me. How about you? All good here as well. I'm I'm delighted to hear that that it feels like summer. It's pretty much the same here as well, and and that's definitely special here in here in Finland. Um, Winnie, kindly introduce yourself to our listeners. What's your background? How did you end up with the world of digital commerce? Oh God, it's an embarrassing long and and uh, a, a long story. I'm nearly 20 years in e-commerce now at this stage. I, I got my first job working in e-com with eBay when they first decided to get into multi-channel retailing in maybe 2006, 2007. Uh, I'd been in banking before that and I I really didn't like it. I didn't like wearing a suit to work. I thought, you know, all my friends work in advertising. I wanted something cool. Um, and I was lucky enough that, that eBay um, had these roles out there. We were based in Dublin, but I got to travel quite a lot with them. So. From there, I moved into proper retail. I spent maybe four years with eBay, you know, meeting brands all across Europe, training teams up, learning from a non-technical perspective how to put products together. Because you got to remember in 2006, the technical composition and the stacks were really different to what they're like now. So, you know, every client had a chief architect for technology and they had an old traditional IT team and a security team. and all these weird and wonderful things that we had to go and learn really, really quickly because we had very ambitious targets. We had to get to hundreds of millions of revenue coming into the business in a very short period of time. And it was sponsored by the then CEO of eBay, Laurie Norrington. So a lot of pressure on us to deliver and learn really quickly. But we were lucky. We, we had a lot of autonomy from the teams around Europe and the leadership. And I think it was at a time when there was a lot of inventory available. So retailers are now trying to say, in the UK, how do we grow our business? How do we get out of this um, single channel business? How do we get new eyeballs? So, you know, eBay just made sense for them. And there was loads and loads of wonderful ways that we could work with them in eBay, be it on refurb stock or, you know, excess inventory or discount stuff. So that was really good. And then I moved into retail, as I mentioned, with an Irish department store. Um, I moved in to do a lot of their technical setup and an operation setup called Arnott's. Um, and I won't go through every job that will just bore you to death, but I wanted to broaden the experience. I wanted to get away from marketplaces and learn how does a retailer think about the world? What are their challenges? What are the legacy technical problems that they have? And refine those skills for myself. And that was a challenge because in Ireland at the time, there was a recession that just started. You know, the, the business themselves had a huge amount of debt and we had to convince the board to come with us in this investment cycle. So. The skills that I had to learn then were really important to pretty much where we find ourselves now, where we've got loads of companies who are trying to figure out how do we do this? How do we invest? Um, how do we prepare for investment and, and what do our teams look like? So really broad set of experiences. And that kind of takes me up to just before I went into my own consulting business, um, I, I decided I wanted to work with more companies than 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 just one. I'd been brand side, I'd been agency side. And, and I wanted to get out and work on my own and apply some of those skills. 
And at the same time, I wanted to get into learning as well. So I started doing professional tra training and academic training. So I've, I've lectured in universities here in Ireland um, and delivered on the, the, the kind of professional training circuit as well for about seven or eight years. That takes me to where I am now. I'm part owner in a direct-to-consumer brand called Crew Outdoors. We, we have Shopify Plus as our platform. 70% of our sales are in the US. We are up to about just under 4 million turnover. Um, we have a team of 14 people. So as a consultant, it's great because now I've got this real life experience where every day we've got problems of ROAS, returns, <laughs> our team, right? All the things that you, you probably uh, you, you deal with on a daily basis. So it's it's great from that perspective. I'm CTO in another uh, brand called uh, Tranquility. We're a UK based jewelry business. And then I'm strategy officer with um, an ERP uh, platform within the SAP arena. So it's great then because I get all this other experience and, and info coming through to me that I've got to process on a daily basis. So very broad, very, uh, very time consuming, but really, really interesting. And, you know, it takes me back to when I first got into e-commerce and I feel as excited about it now as I did way back when. Sorry that's, for that long intro. No worries, thanks. That's that's a great and fascinating story, and you've def definitely seen a lot. That I want to congratulate you for the D two C brand as well. I think it's it's great for a consultant that we can play with an actual case and see how it's how it's been built and experience also the the tough tough moments at times, and um, yeah, it's been crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and and then the next uh, next actual question uh, is is sort of like linked with the fact that I've I've talked with quite many in the in the e-commerce business and especially the ones who have experienced have have been mentioning that we is the guy you need to talk to if you are talking about <laughs> the balance between marketplaces and D2C and overall like understanding that as kind of many of our customers are entering to a, a phase that they are not selling only directly. So what the balance should be. So to start off, could you provide some context on how you see the balance between like D2C and marketplaces evolve over your, your career in e-commerce? Has that changed somehow lately or what would be your thoughts? I was hoping for an easy question, like what's your favorite drink, but um, <laughs> you go straight in two feet. Um, no, th thanks. And if, if I, I'm going to compare it to what we do in our, our, our own uh, brand, it's called Crua Outdoors. It means hard or kind of tough. And that's the kind of materials that we, we, we put together. Um, and we have a business that's uh, got a direct channel. We have third party retail through Walmart, Out North, Moose Jaw and a few others. Um, and then we sell through eBay and Amazon as well in between. And what we realized was that over the last few years, they have all brought different areas of importance to our business. Um, and they're important to us at different times. So, for example, we learned that the the, the balance for us about is, is understanding what that channel brings. And we've got to balance the channel, um, the, the, the channel's importance, the channel's growth versus the team that we have in place and the tools that we have to do it. So we, we didn't just arrive at that point. We had to build up the proficiency, I, I think, of tools was the first thing. We then had to build up the knowledge because every marketplace has got a different kind of skill set that you need. So to work on eBay, it's different to working on Amazon. Um, and then you're saying to this channel manager that, that, you know, Sean, when I talked to me, so overwhelmed by all of the things we asked him to do, just expecting that they all behave differently. And, and, and they don't. So you've got to really understand the nuance of each of those marketplaces and understand that they onboard differently. You know, the tech works differently and they all have different advertising programs now that that's where I think the biggest shift is coming for me. It's by saying, you know, 
up to this year, we probably had a very defined marketing budget that's spent on Meta and spent on Google. Now we have a much more colorful place that it's, you know, people fighting for budget every month to spend on ads on Amazon or Walmart or whatever the next retail platform that we move on to is. And so for us, that that's kind of today's challenge. In the build-up to all of that, some of the things that, that I guess I've seen over the years, aside from us, is that people are trying to figure out what does the channel do. So eBay, as an example, and I worked with Superdry, eBay was a place that they sold seconds products. So product that wasn't perfect for retail used to go into a warehouse in Belgium and it sat there for years. Then one day, one of the guys got bored and said, you know, there's money here. What, what are we going to do with it? And he set up the store on eBay called 888 Clothing. I got I got handed this account one day and said, you know, make this work because it's super dry. who were really operating this and, and, and make it go well. And at the time, this kind of tells you where luck comes into it and, and building your ability to work on marketplaces is not always a simple road, but this this kind of was because at the time, Superdry didn't sell online. They didn't allow third parties to sell online. So it meant that there's this demand there of people who were going onto eBay looking for Superdry and zero products were appearing. So there's this latent demand. And for us, that was a really uh, important learning because we had always targeted people who had high search volume but um, had product available. We just wanted to give the retailer or the brand the opportunity to sell to these customers. We never considered that there was brands that were being searched for, but had no inventory. So Superdry went from doing, I think in week one, we did maybe 20,000 pounds of sales. By month nine, we were up to kind of seven, eight million pounds in revenue that we generated with this warehouse in Belgium. So all of a sudden, Superdry were like, whoa, this, this is really interesting to us. So figuring out its importance was one thing. Um, not becoming too reliant on, on that, I think, is the other thing. You've got to evolve it. You can't just allow it to sit and do this this one little thing for you because, you know, the eBay customer is different to Amazon. So to describe them, if I if I could, and this is about understanding your customer, um, the Amazon customer may, may want to go and buy on Amazon because they want to use their Prime account. They want to know that they're going to get it tomorrow. If they've got a problem, they can return it without really worrying about it. And they've got a different behavior to an eBay customer. An eBay customer in fashion, for example, will know that a brand brings out a new line today, but it may be eight weeks before they get into discount. And that's the point that they start interacting with eBay and browsing. They will go on and they will spend hours browsing through eBay. Such a different behavior to direct. You go on and you see the dwell time or you see number of pages click through. Your conversion rates are tiny. So you've got to understand that eBay's there to maybe help us with our discount cycle and when we get into discounting, instead of going to 30% off on our core website, maybe we go to eBay and offer 15% off because that's the, that's the trigger point because there's so many more people on the websites. And, and this is about understanding traffic volumes, behaviors, rhythms of the way people purchase, and then communicating that. I, I think that's the part that I probably missed quite a lot early in my career was communicating what the impact of that platform is to your team and let them understand this is why we live in this channel. You know, these are the things it's doing for the business. So going back to Crua, our own company, what we found over the last 18 months was that we we had our direct-to-consumer brand that consolidated its position and held for conversion, held for revenue, which for us was good because we were challenged with inventory coming into the business. We were challenged with the increased costs. So maintaining that position was good. Um, and we then got our growth from third party retail. So the more marketplaces we added, the more eyeballs we got on product, 
and we are getting into these niche spots. So for us as a generalist retailer, that was really important to understand what each of those channels meant for us. I think if you're not in that category, the, the, the things that are emerging in, and, and maybe we, we'll touch on it later, um, but, but it's niche marketplaces are becoming really important for people. And that's where you're getting better conversion rates um, because people are going into them for specialist services. Now, to kind of go backwards on all of this, you've got to make sure you've got the systems in place to handle all of this, because the last thing you want to do is create this marketplace environment where every time an order comes in, it's a manual process for people. And that's probably the big jump that I've seen over time is that it's now easier using integrations and tools and third party apps to, to push inventory out to as many places as you want to go. You know, Shopify have, have got their own way of dealing with this, but also to bring orders back in so that they, be, can, they can be processed in the right way. So I, I think to summarize all that, how, how do I dis distinguish between developing the, the, the blend it's that we all know that customers shop in different ways, in different times on different platforms. The, the challenge for us is we've got to be available in those channels. We've got to be available with the right inventory in those channels, but the right inventory at the right price and at the right time means we kind of have to be available all of the time. And I think that can be a really difficult thing for us to understand or, or overcome as brand owners, because we're quite precious about our brands and, and, in the direct-to-consumer world, there's a lot of convincing for people to say, you know, eBay is not Fleabay or it's not the place that people go for secondhand inventory anymore. Um, as soon as Argos released a new catalog in the UK, it's on eBay. You know, it's there in real time. It's priced the exact same. It's no different. Um, and I'm here just to promote eBay, but it's just an example of the sort of mindset shift that we need to get around. And, and I think that blend is as much about mindset and culture and understanding and workload as it is about selling. Another one, sorry. Thanks, and, and I love the stories that you could share with us, especially like the super dry story and all of your long experience. I can definitely hear that. And, and what I've learned myself uh, as consulting with kind of many brands is that, uh, as example, eBay is still a resource that is definitely not not being used in the way that they should, or, or quite many of our customers, at least talking purely from our customer point of view, aren't selling on any marketplaces, or they are perhaps trying one marketplace. So the brands that are very heavily uh, sort of like D2C focused are only learning the power of marketplaces. Um, and that is actually related to my next question. So considering sort of the, the economic uncertainty that has been around for a while and will probably continue <laughs> at least for some upcoming months, who knows, even years. Um, so how does that influence the balance between the D2C approach and utilizing marketplaces? So with your expertise, how should you move in this kind of like more uh, uncertain economic landscape? I think the planning cycles are different. That's one thing I would say. Um, we have we, we, we've got to accept that, you know, there's a sorry, let me rephrase this. The all the, the talk right now is about getting profitability into commerce, right? We've got to deliver it and we're doing it at the most challenging time when people are looking for discounts or deals or, you know, we, we act as marketeers on one side and then we behave as consumers on the other. And we, we never we never realize that when we walk out of our jobs every day, we're, we're shoppers and we're looking for value and we do all the things that we know are quite difficult for us to achieve. So I, I, I think the key thing is to, to try and understand 
the that customers won't always choose uh, your 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 product in the space that you want them to do it or at the time there'll be price comparisons there will be looking at alternatives so you've you've got to plan to make yourself available to be part of that decision purchase when customers look at it so in order to do that you've you, you've got to do quite a bit of planning the, the the reason I say planning is when I look back to 2007 2010 maybe you could kind of plan 12 or 18 months in advance. You could project your growth rates reasonably, reasonably well. That, that's all out the window right now. So we've got to be really, really tactical and understand that what happened last month won't necessarily happen next, this month um, and won't happen in three months time. So we've got to be prepared to get deeper into a skill that I, I kind of think is lost, which is called trading. So within the team structure, we've got to empower someone to say, okay, you come in tomorrow and it's raining in the morning you bring the umbrellas to the front of the store and you say to people hey buy the umbrella it's raining we're going to give you 10 percent off and there's again if i go back to ebay there's this great guy worked in the auto parts industry and he knew instinctively that when it rained he sold more wiper blades you know for your car to keep the, the rain off the, the windscreen and at the time technology wasn't as fluid but he knew that the uk met service so they provided the the, the percentage chance of rain on a daily basis and he decided, okay, well, I'm going to use my gut feeling and try and turn it into a test. And the test was, if it went over 70% chance of rain on any given day, he dropped his price by 10% automatically using the trigger of the 70%. And he experienced an uplift over, over kind of a 12-month period of somewhere, I remember the number being about 25%, but he was able to increase his revenue. He controlled the margin as well because he wasn't going to 30, 40, 50% off. He was just going to 10%, which he knew was enough of a lever to get the sale for people. And I just thought it was a good example of someone trading their store really, really well. And and it's that trading mentality that I think has is, is got to be there for people. We've got to go in every day and fight for the right to get the sale. One of the, the key levers for that or the key identifiers for me is that I get, I get analytics from different companies and, and there's one platform that sends me kind of monthly conversion rate and acquisition rate data from UK, Europe, UK, uh, UK Europe, rest of the world and US. And consistently for the last 18 months, the acquisition rate of new customers has been dropping. So if I take the UK as my core market, it's gone from about 72%. Now it's hovering at about 66%. So it's getting harder to acquire new customers. It's also getting more expensive, which we know. So if we're spending more to if we're spending more to get less customers in, that's going to create a big cash flow drain in our business. What you can do to supplement that is say, well, actually, we're going to spend time and effort creating new marketplace opportunities for ourselves. We don't have to necessarily pay to be on that platform with some of them. We pay a commission on the sale and we evaluate is that commission equal to or more than the marketing spend we were going to go down from an acquisition point of view. And if they're 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 kind of they're they're going to be the same. I think if you looked at it on balance over time, they're they're, they're going to be similar. Um, if I take our business, we have a two percent margin drop when it comes to our marketplace activity, but we've got that growth rate that I mentioned earlier on. So that balance is growth versus margin drop, but we get that growth. That that's kind of what we want. So that's where I think that the, the balance has has got to come in for people. It's 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 kind of creating a final point in all of that we've got to allow greater periods of time because saying if something doesn't work in a month doesn't mean it doesn't work. You know, I, I think we've got to extend how we look at 
the, the, the trend that exists in her business. And I, I, I would argue you could go into any business in the world. I'm sure you've done this loads and you can identify what's going on for the last two years. And someone will come in and say, Rolos has dropped in this channel on Monday morning. That's crap. Turn it off. Your promotion was awful. <laughs> You're fired. And then you go in and say, actually, well, this happens on the third week of every month because payday is next week and we always have this drop. So we do brand activity. Uh, really good. And I love that you're looking in the matter as a, as a long-term matter and that people should be in many cases much, much more patient. Um, and then a linked question to you, Winnie. So there's definitely been an explosion in a number of marketplaces recently, as, as you pointed out earlier in this episode. What impact does that have on brands deciding whether to focus on D2C or expand into these new platforms? Any advice for brands? What should you do? Are we going to be controversial on this one? I think um, <laughs> when you're growing brand, that's generally all about sales, right? The, the, the thing you're going to be asked by investors, by your team, whoever it's going to be, is going to say, what's our, what's our revenue number? What's our profitability number? So I think you've got to create a sales plan for the business. Brand development is exceptionally difficult where there's so much noise out there. And, you know, the, if, if you go to look for a new, a new uh, baseball cap like you have, you can go to probably a thousand different sellers of, of those caps, of trucker caps, and it becomes so difficult and so difficult to stand out. And everyone's a content producer, as we know now. So capturing people's attention is so exceptionally challenging and time consuming. Marketplaces give us the connection between someone who wants something in that instant and they, they know they'll be selecting from alternatives. So I, I, I think that if, if I was a brand starting today, I'd say, OK, we, we're going to take our product, but our primary function is to get sales to a level that we can establish our brand and we can develop it. And, you know, developing a brand is such a it's kind of a 24 seven job. You've, you've got to eat it and sleep it and breathe it. And, and, you know, the need for authenticity and constant contact and and all of those things make brand development, I think, far more challenging than sales development. So I, I say to people, if they really want to to kind of grow their business, I think sales is the first thing. So if I was starting out today, I would start on a marketplace, develop my sales profile, understand the commerciality of my business. So if, if I can make a margin on Amazon, as an example, chances are I can do a good job on my own site. Plus, I've already adhered to the strictest service standards in the industry. They're, they're too strict, in, in my opinion, but but I know I can do it. So now I can say my brand proposition can develop because we can deliver on service, we can deliver on price, we can deliver on the, the, the things that consumers work for. So now let's refine our brand story around that. So for me, that's where I, that's the, the kind of uh, thought process that I go through on a daily basis. Thanks for sharing that. I think that's uh, super interesting. And then if we move on and we focus more on the D2C and this was actually the discussion where we probably uh, met for the very first time online and had a good discussion on D2C brands mm -hmm. and if they are overvaluing themselves and, and what's happening with the D2C brands like overall. So Winnie, what's your, what's your view on this? So especially in the US, uh, there has been tons of discussion about uh, overvaluing D2C brands uh, and, and what's the valuation of any, any D2C brand. So how does this shift impact the balance between D2C and marketplace strategies and overall any views on the, the valuation of D2C brands? So whether you're a new brand or a traditional brand going D2C, any thoughts? Oof. 
Where do I start with this one? Um, so, yes, there has been an overvaluation. I, I think we can, I think we're safe in saying that. The valuation, that overvaluation process has done something, in my opinion, which has, it goes back to our last question. It has put pressure on people to scale a brand really, really quickly uh, to get to 50, 60 million with a view to exit only. So what, we, what we've been building over the last number of years has been, you know, in, in certain cases, an unsustainable business approach because all we're focused on is revenue up, valuation at the door, let's get an exit in and we're all happy. That, that's only happened to a handful of brands. You know, they've been lucky enough to be in that position, they're a good product. Um, so I think the overvaluation is leveling out a little bit. The, the, the information that, that I suppose I would discuss with, you know, you, you, you've mentioned Rick earlier on, we, we discuss these things reasonably frequently and valuations right now are coming in at about 25 to 30% of what they were 12 months ago. So there's a realization that the value is not there. Measurement metrics have been wrong. Um, it, it's it's not to say that they're the wrong metrics, but over the time frame that we're now looking at, it, it's a bit different. If I take our brand, our our um, our brand Crua, we crowdfunded our business, so we didn't go down the VC route. We turned down private equity money stupidly. Now I I would think I'd bite your <laughs> hand off for it right now, but we turned it down on Christmas Eve in two thousand. 19 because we were given a deal sheet two weeks late on christmas eve expected to to um to cave in i guess and and go with a lower valuation on our business but we crowdfunded the business right now we have a crowdfunding campaign it's valuing our business for four million dollar turnover it's valuing us at about 9.4 million now that's the platform themselves they've done due diligence we use cedars as an equity crowdfunding platform um and and we we would get feedback frequently from investors who are maybe not institutional, but casual. And they would say that they feel that even that's overvalued for a company with 4 million turnover. And, you know, it's it's not my core area of expertise, but you, you can see the sides of the argument that, that are gonna be there. What what I would say about the, the D2C and marketplace strategy, looking at valuation and how it might be impactful. When it comes to retail, one of the things I learned was, if you can take a product and move into multiple categories or a product set, that adds a value or a multiplier to your value to a potential investor. If you can do that in multiple countries then and do it in different languages and in different territories, that adds another multiple. So you might go from a business being valued at five times EBITDA to you know, expanding into 10 countries, loads of different languages, and now you've got a retail distribution footprint in those countries. You might get a valuation at 20 times your original EBITDA because of all the complexity you solve for your investor to say, okay, well, we want to scale this by 10x, excuse me. They don't have to do the due diligence and understanding. Is it possible? The framework is there for them to scale it out and put their their engine behind it. For me, that's what marketplaces lend to you as a business owner. You can go and test the waters to see, can we sell in Europe? Like one of the most complex markets in the world because of the language barriers and the complexity and us all being European, you know what that means. You know, we all have different points of view and, and different cultural um, makeups as people. So we have different expectations on delivery, for example, or payment methods. So, you know, if you can get that right through marketplaces and, and you can grow and continue to show it and bring um, bring profitability into your business, you're doing a lot of the legwork and telling your story for someone who's going to value your business. So I think marketplaces can add quite a lot to that story, a lot of richness. 
um, in answering the questions that you're going to be asked as part of any due diligence process anyway. Great. Uh, and I need, would need to like agree on so many points. Uh, as I've been following the D2C brands in the, since the early days, Dollar Shave Club, Casper, Allbirds and all of those, and then lately seeing what, what happens with the valuation when they are insane and, and nobody ever, ever trusts uh, trust that we can get on that level. So I've always told my customers that not everyone can be Dollar Shave Club. So the lightning exactly. doesn't strict twice or whatever. So just to like make sure that you can still have a really viable and good business case, but it's just like not with an insane valuation. So maybe maybe uh, people have gotten more realistic there. Um, then the next question would be that we've also seen like corporate brands enter the D2C space up to major like five, Fortune 500 companies. Uh, what do you think has driven this move and how does this affect the dynamic between D2C and marketplaces that there are these major players entering the D2C space? Any thoughts? There's a couple of things I've observed, and I don't know if you agree or, or they're, they're even right, but the, the, the things that, that D2C allows, you know, major conglomerates to, to learn is they can learn quickly. So take Heinz as an example, they get into D2C really quickly during the pandemic. The, the, the famous story is they turned around in four days to have a Shopify plus store live with their ketchup and, and everything that goes with it. I, I think the risks are, if you look at them compared to other projects that they take on at that scale, the, the risks are so far, far less for them because they can design new brands in terms of processes they can design outside of legacy systems so they, they can be relatively uh, cheap and easy for them to put together and the other thing that the, the other areas that i i suppose I, I would talk to people around and, and clients in that space is that they learn about the skills that they need in the long term to embed in their business so they learn about how how are we going to impact culture change within their business to know that um you know e-commerce is going to be part of what we want to do who are the types of people that we want to get in how would we attract them how do we measure their performance so there's this whole area of test and learn is, is becoming really important um the idea of data gathering is something that's been talked about quite a lot and, and I, I do think it's important that's becoming less important i think as the big retail um the, the big retailers become media platforms themselves. They're trying to provide this uh, first party data access to, to, to brands at that size. So I, th I think for me, it's that test and learn phase that they can get into really quickly and understand what are the what are the key things that they can take away and what are the things that they don't know? Because you've got to remember, they already have tons and tons of information. They have huge shopper insights teams. This for them is about understanding the dynamics of a channel and how they can dominate it and how they, how they can earn category share um, and, and also grow new brands. Like, is, is there a space for them to take some of their traditional brand values and, and flip them on their head and do something completely unique that allows them the flexibility and market that, you know, 40 years of selling in, in, a, in a core market doesn't allow for them? So I, I, for me, it, it seems like kind of a no brainer for them. I'm seeing it more in certain categories. So CPG and FMCG, this is a place that D2C is emerging all of the time. Um, it's not always profitable. I, I think they want to understand customer dynamics. Where I'm seeing it becoming a better experience for the customer and the industry that I've seen it do the best is in the DIY sector. So in the UK, we've got Screwfix and Kingfisher Group and these guys are, are are doing it really well. They they have used D2C as a platform to learn 
again, all the things we said, the, the, you know, how do we get our data right? How do we prepare manufacturing data to be ready for e-com at the front end? And the only way they can do that is by learning and connecting all those systems. So for me, that's probably the next phase of where e-commerce becomes really interesting. It's about learning about the interconnectability and, and using all of that to bring efficiencies to businesses and saying, well, actually, our e-commerce is not here just to grow our business. We want to we want to reduce our cost base. And I'm sure you see this in Plus all the time that, you know, if you can use flows really effectively, you can reduce admin overhead for people. And I don't understand why that's not the first thing we talk about is how, how do we change our processing? How can we do it better? Um, we always had this rule on eBay it was stop, start, do more of stop doing the things that aren't working. Start trying something new and testing and learning and do more of the things that we can prove time and time again work. That's kind of what D2C for me does and does it in a lot less risky way for the Fortune 500s and people like that as well. Oh my, <laughs> great comments. <laughs> I, I would definitely agree on those and I've been like trying to think myself that what are the, what are the reasons why so many CPG brands are, are entering the space and we have even like quite many as our customers and mm. I've understood that data might be one then marketing is, is, is something that they are looking after they want to know that uh, how to how to make sure that could be to see even even work as a marketing channel for them as some of the traditional marketing isn't anymore working that way or in digital marketing the costs are rising or, or they are not kind of like finding the ways to to reach some some of their target audiences and then the, I, I guess like the most funny stories is from a customer where we had a really great discussion is that they didn't quite know how their product was well like consumed what's the what's the time window how it's being mm -hmm. consumed how different customer profiles are, are consuming the product so as they were fully relying on their their study data and they were relying on the data that they got from their retailers and then when they started to sell directly with Shopify plus and, and even had a subscription uh, service with with recharge there then they understood that the product was actually actually consumed in the in a very different pattern that that uh, that they thought and that again like led to their r and d that they should actually like have different sizes of, of of goods available because that's actually the pattern how the most uh, of their consumers are consuming the goods or, or what how it should be even better so it can always like create these sort of like different ideas which which actually nobody was thinking about before launching the operation but overall like gathering data and, and feedback and, and also sort of like understanding that how the how the goods are consumed but uh, I, I, lo I love that I, I, I declined it can I just say we're almost 35 please. minutes in and we have not mentioned LTV. I think this is a podcast <laughs> record. So, um, so Mika, we've 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 done it. Um, I just want to say the R and D thing is really interesting because I, I had a small mentoring client that I worked with, and she had this um, recovery drink that she created. And part of her real problem of growing it was the shelf life, the fact that it'd be refrigerated and everything else. And she started researching bigger brands. She reversed it. And she she recreated her product as a powder format in a, a small resealable pack that she could then get out there and it transformed her business. It meant she could go from not relying on physical retail and chill delivery to ambient. And, you know, she, she's really gone from strength to strength since then. So I'm glad you're, you reminded me of that. Are you tired of manual data collection? Would you like to get more actionable insights from data to increase your profitability and forecast future sales? 
We at Wilman, a leading Shopify Plus agency, have a solution for you. Ellis is an AI-driven business intelligence tool that combines data from multiple sources into a single-view, customizable dashboard. With Ellis, you can make data collection, reporting, and analyzing a breeze. It does all the work for you. Get a deeper insight into your customer segments, clarity on product and store performance, visibility into future sales, and so much more. Get a free demo now and start leading your business with data-driven decisions today. Next question. What are the, some of the biggest trends you see uh, right now in the world of digital commerce? You can even mention that LTV if you wish. No, I, I, I'm going to try and uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to try and avoid it if I can. Um, <laughs> The biggest trend, if I, if I look through different categories, I mentioned retail media right now, the way that we spend money from a marketing perspective is certainly changing and we're being challenged to look at all the different places that we can spend it, given that there are consumers everywhere. So I, I, I think for me that that's a, a real trend and I, I try and distinguish between a trend and a shift. So I, I kind of think that that's a shift and the shift for me is like something that's been happening for a long time. Um, but it's been embedding itself. Um, it's been embedding itself in the way that we do business, and that 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 for me was one of the the, the, the kind of um, the key things that I see. It's it's been happening for a long time. People have been spending. We've been spending on Walmart and, and Crew, our ten company, for I think it was about four years ago. We first started spending. It, it was a an internal only uh, service so we had to meet their media team we tell them what we wanted to do they come back with a media pack we'd agree it we'd approve it then there'd be a change and, and we weren't really sure replacements and we got a report at the end of what was going on and it told us you know were we good bad or indifferent to me that's where european retail media is right now i, I work with uh, yumbo in uh, belgium and that's kind of where they're at they've just released their first version of self-serve Walmart went 18 months in and then well to that self-serve area. So they, they've also started hiring directly from uh, the likes of Meta and Google as well. So to me, it feels like that, that that is something that's here to stay. Brands feel comfortable spending with retailers already because they're trying to forge relationships. So for me and CPG, that idea of spending a retail media is, is going to be there uh, and will continue to be there for a while. Oh, other areas that I see, just two other quick ones. Growth in B2B, I think, is enormous. The B2B sector has kind of sat quietly in the corner for a long time, <laughs> letting everyone make all the mistakes and get everything right and wrong. And now they're now they're happy to invest and they're actually solving business problems. That's the difference I see in projects is that you talk to a B2B client and I know you guys cross over, so I'll be interested to hear your thoughts. I see B2B solving real business problems, not going to market with something they're taking a chance on. They've said, no, no, we think that like we've mentioned, that replacing our legacy ERP gives us flexibility to order differently or treat uh, suppliers differently. I, I don't know if that's something you see. And then my final point, and we come back to that maybe, is uh, hiring challenges. I see it's so difficult to get talent right now. Um, that's that's not a kind of a an in an, an in market um, story that no one knows about. But I I just see it as a a problem because we haven't invested in education over the last ten or fifteen years, and now we have all these problems around. Um, you know, managing multiple challenges, trading managers, uh, marketing into different channels, growing ter territorially. How how do you do that within a business where the skills don't exist? And I see that as a consistent challenge within our industry and something that that it's leading to more outsourcing. I, I and and I think that's ultimately the way it's going to continue to go. Um, but going back to the B two B thing, is is that something you see as an agency? Like, or do you see that difference? 
I love the question because I'm, I'm a former B2B merchant for a oh, okay. listed company and we had like crazy, a crazy big warehouse and then we also did um, sort of like show some stock that wasn't listed in our warehouse, but we did uh, some pretty complicated stuff there. So the warehouse was actually located in the US and, and, and in Asia uh, and then we just listed those as our SKUs and added some good marches on top. Um, but what I've lately seen that definitely there is more and more demand in, in, in B2B. And as, as we are like the Europe's large Shopify Plus agency, we've had like tons of requests now when, when Shopify launched their B2B functionality, which is surprisingly uh, sort of like sophisticated already now. And they're launching new features almost every single month. So especially it's like for, for smaller brands or growing brands, that has been a no-brainer, especially if you are already on Shopify. And then some of the enterprise level players are looking for that sort of option. If I look at different countries in Europe and their status, I think it's it's very market specific, at least from my, my perspective. There are definitely industries where where sort of like uh, B2B e-commerce is already running pretty well. They are happy with it. They have been investing there and their customers are, are extremely happy with that. And they uh, sort of like appreciate the, the, the easiness of that. But then I also see industries where it's still up and coming, even despite the pandemic, that they are now thinking about opening their first like on, B2B online store because they have heard that this is a thing or somebody had told them that if you want to have uh, your existing customers also in the future, upcoming decades, now you need to act. So I see like uh, definitely more room there and in certain industries that it will it will be it will be huge when it's uh, going to be live. And, and and it definitely like as you as you mentioned fixes actual problems or or enables the companies to to spend time on actual business problems than than filling actual sheets or or doing so that sort of like manual labor. So if, as example, if I remember myself as a B two B merchant, and our single order that was was processed, I think it went through seven persons <laughs> before oh, yeah. it it, it, oh, it was like filled from the warehouse. And then uh, as a consultant, I've seen tons of B2B cases. So I see like very similar structure this and, and sort of like uh, it's it's something that people do in a way that they think that this is the right way to do it. But then I feel that there is definitely room to make it more efficient and also for the customers that they get like better service, whatever it is, how it's how it's being handled. Uh, as example, what I see is that, that, that there is one single touch point that is actually making the purchases or purchase orders. But in, in, in many systems, it's tough to even get the permissions for the whole team or whole organization. And with a good B2B uh, online solution, then it can be sort of like share across, across the organization so that all the individuals can, as example, check that what they need for their projects or estimate that what would be the nice goods that they are actually looking for. So definitely like slightly moving away from the old old school uh, catalog sales more to that kind of like demand-driven process where where uh, everybody is being handled as, as good as possible and everything is digital. So I still see tons of pap paper catalogs and it's 2023. Mm. So I think that there is definitely room for, <laughs> for business and improvement. Any thoughts about this? <laughs> 
well, you said it twice. You you talked about customer experience, and I think if you've got that at the center of what you're solving for, you're not going to go too far wrong. You're just going to make people happy along the way. And one of the things that I find in that is that that's your that becomes your marketing story. Is you know every quarter you've got a release, and here's the new feature that makes it easier for you. I think you know the subculture of the field sales team owning every sale and getting the commission that that that's gone. I think you've got yeah. to look at. How you incentivize whole teams but no I, look you, you summarize it perfectly if you're solving for customer experience you're never going to go too far wrong yep um we are almost out of time but windy my last question and it's very yeah. shopify related as you've seen tons of platforms you've been in the business for a long time so what about in shop shopify if you compare that to other platforms where is shopify heading from from your perspective and are you happy with Shopify and Shopify Plus? What would be your like open, open and transparent Ooh. feedback? <laughs> this is where the edit kicks in, and you're like, "Oh, sorry, we ran out of time." <laughs> and no, look, I, I I love it. I think it has made it it's simple for so many smaller businesses to get started in e-commerce. I think it has challenged the way that we present e-commerce to people, and it has made it pe- easier for people with like, the skills in e-commerce to understand what's going on in my business. So I think from that perspective, it's been fantastic. Plus itself um, has, it's probably got a layer of requirement that I think is a little bit different. I, I, I think we need to fully architect the systems to get the best value from it. And, and you know, that's, that's where agencies can help. It's where people with old architect backgrounds, and I mean systems architecture can help because I think if you can identify where cost savings can be made or where be- process improvements can be made, Plus is really lending itself to that and, and, you know, opening up of flows and all of the additions of things like B2B. We're, we're now really seeing Shopify becoming a business in a box. And, you know, they, they have a huge number of clients all around the world. I wouldn't say I'm ever disappointed in things that they do. They, they, they constantly try and, and innovate. I, I would say that what they do really well is to get a product to market quickly so people can test it, so they can test it and then deliver on the efficiencies of it. Where do I think it's going? Um, probably comes back to our discussion around marketplace and you know the shop app has been out there for a long time I always envisioned having something in my pocket that I could set the rules for what I wanted to do every month and say I want to spend $100 on groceries $50 on clothing and I need it to be this size this size and this and present options to me every week I'd love to see them deciding where shop as a marketplace is going to sit for them um, they they tested a beta feature in America at the weekend around, you know, uh, making cash cash available to people and, and vouchers and things like that. So I think they're close. I, I would like to see that they do that and then localize it straight away. Because if I take Ireland as a tiny, small economy, um, we have, you know, five and a half million people. We've, th- I think, 10,000 e-commerce companies here. It doesn't make sense that in my small village that 40 companies have their own Shopify store and compete in Ireland for advertising shop as a marketplace allows him to say well i'm going to spend my marketing dollars here because i know i'm spending it with amongst local people and fighting for eyeballs that matter to me not in this far bigger world so i think it's got great potential to to figure out how to take a a slightly different approach to e-commerce and this is probably my closing comment that i don't believe that the way we've done e-commerce for the last 15 years using the us and the uk as the model is the way that every country should take it forward i think you know, we've got to challenge things like next day delivery is not possible everywhere. So let's not yeah. make it the standard. We, I, I think that's where something like a unified shop app for me 
can can take us and they're the sorts of discussions we should be having to say how can it be different in Finland like what are the things that need to be different how can it be different in Ireland and for me that's where it's getting really exciting it's uncovering these discussions and then trying to do something about it using open APIs and the tech that's there and there's so many marketing tech companies that are doing that and that 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 again gets me really excited about the future of the industry Fabulous. Love it. And I'm also Great. a lover of, of the shop app. Uh, small story. I, I think I, I installed it back in the day when it appeared on the on the app store. It was in alpha or beta phase and mm. uh, put it on my phone. And then next day, someone from Canada called me that, why do you have it installed? You're in Finland. I'm like, yeah, I was, I was <laughs> wishing to give it a go and I love it. And I've been using it ever since nobody has removed it. So I think it's, it's a brilliant idea yeah. to connect sort of like all the stores plus it's super convenient to follow all of your orders completely yeah i love i love knowing where my orders are to be honest <laughs> but hey thank you so much for your time winnie where can people reach you if, if they want to know more about your consultation your experience or want to want to reach out generally the best place to find me is on linkedin i have a website vinnieandco.com but uh, i do a lot of posting on linkedin i post daily you've got a newsreel and I'll be starting my own podcast in July this year as well. But um, yeah, LinkedIn, it's linkedin.com forward slash Vinnie O'Brien. That's V-I-N-N-Y-O-B-R-I-E-N. But thank you so much for your time, Mikko, and for the discussion and, and everything around it. I really enjoyed it. So I appreciate you you guys bringing me along. Likewise. Thank you so much. Tune in for next episode on Monday. Thank you. <laughs>